Good morning, Canberra, and happy National Science Week. It's our favourite week of the year here at Fuzzy Logic, and we're here to celebrate it with you. And I've got some amazing scientists in the studio today to talk more about it. My name is Broderick, and it's great to be here with you for your science on a Sunday. Thanks for Bruce for Irish voice in the hour beforehand. Some beautiful Irish music as always, but now we are diving into the world of science. And in fact, we're going to rock it today as we dive into the world of geoscience. And to help me with it today in the studio, I have my co-presenter, Camille. Good morning, Camille. Morning, Broad. Happy Science Week. Indeed. How have you been celebrating already? I've been scoping out things online, actually. There's a lot of things online where people are showing off what they can do. So I've, yeah, been staying in and warm and watching things <laughs> on the computer and watching people, yeah, talk about their work, which is great. Very nice, very nice. I made my way over to Questacon yesterday where the AFP took over Ooh, the nice. centre and um, took the fingerprints of my daughter and son <laughs> at uh, two and three months, respectively. Um, but we now have a beautiful record of their fingerprints amongst all their <laughs> other forensic activity, which is very exciting. Exciting um, and looking forward to a whole range of events this week. Um, You've started their dossier with the AFP early this that's week. Right. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. But uh, no, very exciting times uh, across. And we're going to hear more about some National Science Week events happening a little later in the show. Um, but of course, you can find them all at scienceweek.net.au if you want to find out what's near you. But this morning, uh, I'm really excited to have some uh, a geoscientist and science communicator from Geoscience Australia with us to talk about a new exhibition that they're launching uh, coming up very soon. So let's introduce them to you. First up, uh, Dr. Verity Normington, geoscientist from Geoscience Australia. Good morning. Morning. How are you today? Good, good. How have you been rocking science lately? Oh, well, this weekend, actually, I was doing the unconformity tours of at um, Australian Parliament House, which are really cool. So that's done for this week. That's what we did uh, Friday and Saturday. So that was fantastic. So I've already dabbled a little bit in National Science Week. <laughs> and you've been sharing it with lots of other that's people right, through exactly. those tours. Yeah, very interesting. What's the uh, the coolest rock you were showing off in Parliament House? Yeah, so the rock um, that we, the, the Geoscience Australia people look at and, and contribute to to the tour is um, an unconformity that we thought was completely lost to Canberra. Um, when they built New Parliament House and Wolf Mayer, who was a professor of geology at University of Canberra, was um, talking to some of the staff and lamenting the loss of this amazing unconformity. And they went, are you sure there's still rocks under Parliament House? He went, really? And they went down and found it. Um, so it's this one of the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that's really important to the geology of the Canberra region. Um, which has now not been lost, has been found and is preserved under Parliament House, which is really cool. Right. So there was a good reason to keep it up on that. That's hill. right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Very cool. And also joining us from Geoscience Australia, science communicator Alice Ryder. Good morning, Alice. You may. Good morning. How have uh, you been rocking out for National Science Week yourself? Well, I don't want to steal your thunder, but I also went to the AFP. Um, <laughs> but I've been investigating earth science in my own backyard over the last few weeks, um, planting lots of fruit trees, ah, which requires nice. digging very large holes in very clayey soils. So I've been getting up close and personal with my own soil profile in my own backyard. <laughs> very, very exciting. It's, that's the, uh, the surface level geology that's so important, right? Indeed, and physically hard work. So I, I've appreciated it both emotionally and physically, and it's, it's it's a fun thing to explore, if a little bit challenging sometimes. <laughs> awesome. Well, look, it's uh, it's great to have you both in the studio this morning because uh, we're here to talk about a new exhibition that's happening at Geoscience Australia called Rocks That Shape Australia. Now, Camille, if you had to pick a rock that shaped Australia, which which rock would you pick as the big one? 
I'm not sure. I've seen some tessellate ones, which are really great on shorelines. And I oh. think that would have been a really big part of, of, how, of where we lived and, and how we got to get up on the shore and all of that. So I... I love those. Yeah, I love the the Bunda Cliffs on the uh, the Great Australian Bight. There, beautiful rocks, and it wasn't until I actually went there and I realised that it just it just drops off. It is like <laughs> the end of the earth there, um, and that very much contributes to the shape of Australia. Um, but we, we're going to dive in a bit deeper around that. And Alice, I might um, get you to to kick us off here. What are we talking about when we say rocks that shape Australia in this exhibition? Are we just talking about the outline? That could definitely part be part of it, but it's not the whole thing. So to take a tiny weeny step back before I jump into the exhibition itself, we think Geoscience Australia is awesome and hopefully lots of people in Canberra have heard of it. But just in case they don't know the broader context of what we do before we explain our exhibition, Geoscience Australia is an organisation that's I like to think about as being very similar to the Bureau of Meteorology or the BOM. So the BOM map and monitor and understand our climate and weather. At Geoscience Australia, we do the same thing, but we map and monitor and understand the earth. That can be the earth's surface, it can be what's underneath the ground, and it can be looking back at earth from space. So we love geology at Geoscience Australia. We love our rocks and minerals. We have amazing rocks and minerals on display that members of the public can come and see for free. But one of the things that we are aware of is that maybe not every single person in Australia is as a thousand percent on the rock train as we are. So we have created an exhibition called The Rocks That Shape Australia to tell some of the stories behind some of our amazing rocks. And our aim is to show that no matter what your interest is, it can be linked to rocks. So you might not think that you love rocks, but if you love social history, there's a rock link to that. If you love the environment, there's a rock link to that. If you love things like sport, we can think about the ground that's beneath the MCG, for example. So we've got lots and lots of different ways that people can love rocks. And we have picked eight rocks inspired by a talk and a paper developed by a lady named Dr. Marita Bradshaw, who's worked at Geoscience Australia for well over 30 years. She has a very eminent geologist, picked a list of rocks that she thinks shape Australia in those different ways. We're trying to tell those stories and get as many people as possible to think about the value of rocks. And exactly as you've just done, think about the rocks they think shape Australia, both in history, but also the rocks that are going to be important to our future. Very interesting indeed. So there's a, there's a whole lot of ways that you could take that, of course, through the different issues there and that sort of thing. Let's, let's take a time lens first, because you mentioned future, but let's go way back in the past. What's one of the earliest rocks in that collection that's shaping um, Australia? Well, the oldest rock that we have as part of this exhibition is called Banded Iron Formation, or BIF for short. I just love the sound of that word. It's a great value word, but maybe hard to say on the radio. So apologies there. So Biff or Banded Iron Formation is the oldest rock that we have featured in the exhibition. Um, and when we think about iron ore, so the iron ore that we dig up in huge quantities and sell overseas, a lot of that iron ore comes from this Biff or this Banded Iron Formation. So we can think about its value in terms of its value to the economy. Uh, Australia's biggest export is iron ore and we're the biggest iron ore producer in the world. So it's incredibly important to our economy has been for quite a long period of time. But the thing I really love about banded iron formation is it tells a story about the very, very, very early history of Australia and the earth. 
So way, way back, three and a half billion years ago, Australia looked very different to what it does now. We might think about ancient things like dinosaurs, things like trilobites. This is way, way, way before then, back when life was just beginning. And if we think about the, the area that is now part of Western Australia, it was a totally different universe. Um, the sky was probably orange rather than blue or grey like it is today. The oceans were probably a green, sort of lime green disco bubbling colour. And life was super duper basic. The only living things were bacteria-like organisms. They were tiny, tiny bacteria that lived in colonies, a bit like coral living colonies. And they built themselves up in slimy layers like slime lasagnas. And about three and a half billion years ago, 3,500 million years ago, a new type of bacteria evolved that could do something really clever. They could photosynthesize. So just like plants do today, they could use carbon dioxide to make energy for themselves. And as a byproduct, they release oxygen. And that process of adding free and available oxygen to the world changed it humongously. Over time, the oxygen went into the oceans. These were ocean-dwelling animals. And it began to rust out dissolved iron. So if you can imagine rain, but raining rust that slowly, slowly fell down onto the ground under the water and it built up in layers and layers and layers of rusty irony material that over millions and millions and millions of years built this biff rock. So that rock tells the story of how our oceans got their oxygen. Eventually, once most of that iron had rained out, the oxygen could escape into the atmosphere and slowly, slowly, slowly it built up the atmosphere that we all use to breathe today. So these rocks tell us the story of how living things as we know them, most living things engage with oxygen. In fact, for these very early organisms, it was poisonous to them. It wasn't something they were used to. So there were many different periods of time where these these organisms evolved and then, then passed away, then evolved and then came back again to get our new atmosphere that we all think about today. So whenever I breathe in, I think about these biff rocks. <laughs> Just essential to your life. Yeah, and the really cool thing about geology and earth science and earth scientists understanding these sorts of processes that happened 3.5 billion years ago is that we're actually using those concepts today to explore for life on other planets. Mm. So a lot of the a lot of the understanding, so Alice talked about bacteria and those sorts of things, and as they evolved, they evolved into things like stromatolites and those sorts of things, which are amazing and we see them here, when we send the rover off to Mars, that's some of the things that the rover's looking for because that's an indication that there may be some sort of, of atmospheric formation where humans can then live on. So they're actually, and they're looking for that sort of thing also because it means that there may have been water on Mars at some point, which then points to you know other types of things like is the atmosphere on Mars, for example, good for humans? Can we grow things there? Can you know? Can we mine things there? So some of the, the our geology and Earth science and what we understand about the past very much helps us today and into the future as well. So um, the Biff is is fantastic and not my favourite in the whole exhibit, but I think it's a great example of rocks and makes beautiful land formations over in West, in Western Australia as well. Yeah, I was going to ask where can we see these rocks? Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure the Bungle Bungles is a type of um, Biff. I think it's slightly younger. When I say younger, I mean younger in geology time. It's not younger in human time. So it's probably like, I don't know, only 3 billion years old or something like that. Um, but there is a lot of places over in in, um, in the Pilbara and, and in those sorts of areas, the Rawlinson um, ranges and those types of things over in Western Australia where um, you can see, see um, Bannadine formations. It's very much just... 
And you look at it and go, oh, that's cool. Until you start thinking about these layers are actually representing those evolutions of different types of life. And then, you know, that continued on to we get to where we are today. So the Mars rover was actually literally trained to walk across ancient stromatolites. So the stromatolites were those lasagna-like layers of bacteria the, the colonies they formed are called stromatolites. So it literally practiced walking across ancient stromatolites in Western Australia to train it to look for life overseas, which I find amazing. It's radio. So I was arming and arming about bringing the rocks in to show you. <laughs> I didn't in the end because I realised that would be mean for only two people out of many, many listeners to see. But the biff is also really, I think, aesthetically, it's quite beautiful. So it builds up in layers of sort of dark maroni red, if you think of like, you know, the Queensland state of origin colours, dark maroni red, sometimes yellowy mustardy layers, olivey green layers, dark brown layers. And often because these rocks are so old, they've been squished and stretched and and bent around. So you can have beautiful wavy layers of different colours. So it's also a really beautiful rock in that respect. Yeah. And so I presume those waves then within that rock are showing just how much the earth in, in forming has really moved about and changed. It's not a straight, perfect that, That's stride. right, exactly. And, you know, we, we often think about, we talk about the continental plates and we think, oh, that's like our dinner plate and it's hard and, you know, we have an earthquake and it breaks in half. That's not what our continental plates are. They're actually, there's, while they're hard on the surface as you get further and further to, down into the centre of the earth, they become more like toothpaste. And so when, as the plates move around and those sorts of things, they fold and they and they sort of, become they either they come deformed and those sorts of things and when they get a rock that's on the surface gets buried it gets hot and then it gets molten and sort of in that toothpastey thing and that's when those beautiful folds that Alice was talking about and those those different structures on that that we see in rocks that are preserved today they tell us about the movement of the of the earth and, and the continent and that particular region um and you know geologists will go out there and map them and work out what angles they're at and that you know you, you build up all of the evidence and then you can tell the, the, the geological evolution of an area, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's very exciting. And too. it's like hunting for clues, right? Yeah. You, you weren't, no one was there to witness this happening. So people have gone and looked at it. And as you said, it got layered on the earth on, under the oceans and now it's up above it. And I think that's the mind blowing. That's right. And, you know, it's, it's the, the, I do um, a lot of things with kids and in schools and I take out what I call the wave rock and it's um, preserved ripples from an ancient, um, you know, one billion year old sea in Central Australia that I've brought, I've taken home with me. And I take it out and I go, what does this remind you of? And they go, oh, the ocean. I'm like, yes, that's it. And this is from the middle of Australia, which is now a desert and it used to be an ocean. <laughs> so it's, I, and I often say the rocks talk to you and tell you their clues and that's how you build up their story and that's how you start to understand how something has happened, you know, and why we have a hill there and a plane over there and those sorts of things. It's amazing, Yeah. Well, speaking of oceans, maybe we can go down that track because I think there's one rock in the collection that does talk a bit about the the water that used to cover this great continent. Do you want to introduce us to that one, Alice? Sure. So we call that rock a Cretaceous Marine Sedimentary Rock, which is a little bit of a mouthful. But as you say, it tells a really amazing story. So as Verity just mentioned, um, we think about the middle of Australia as being on average pretty hot and dry these days. But in the ancient past, during the Cretaceous time, and if that might be a word you've heard about in association with dinosaurs, so this is way younger than our bands at iron formation, um, large parts of Australia were actually underwater. About a third of our continent was covered by an inland sea. 
Um, and Verity might be able to talk a little bit about, more about the sea in a moment. But it's a really fascinating rock for a number of reasons. We often find incredible fossils in these sorts of rocks of the animals that lived during that period, during the Cretaceous. And so we had dinosaurs walking around on land. We have some incredible fossils and our Cretaceous marine sediment that's on display as part of this exhibition features the jaw of an animal called an ichthyosaur. So an ichthyosaur is not a dinosaur. It's the first thing people want you to say when you talk about an ichthyosaur. <laughs> but if you picture an animal that functionally behaves like and whose body looks like a really big dolphin but is a reptile, this was a reptile-like animal that was alive at the same time as the dinosaurs but is a different type of reptile. And it behaved like a dolphin. It swam through the water really fast. They're actually the fastest marine reptiles that have ever lived. Um, and they, they ate fish out of the middle of the water column like dolphins do. So we have part of a preserved jaw with its teeth intact. And one of the features of the exhibition is actually a model of this type of ichthyosaur. So you can come and see the jaw embedded in our amazing Cretaceous marine sedimentary rock and then look above you and see a model of the animal as it would have looked. And how big is your ichthyosaur? So our ichthyosaur is a teenager. It's about three metres long. Okay. But these types of ichthyosaur could grow to be about seven metres long. Oh, wow. An ichthyosaur is not one species of animal. It's a group of animal. And they lived for a long time and changed over time. So there were some that were way bigger, sort of larger than whale sharks. This is a later type of ichthyosaur. So, you know, it's it's only seven metres long. <laughs> um, but ours is still pretty impressive. And it's a really cool story in terms of talking about changing environments. But these rocks are also very important for groundwater, which is critical for Australians today and something that Geoscience Australia does research on, but also play a role in the storage of, of oil and gas as well. So that we can talk about this rock in heaps of different ways. Yeah, that's right. And, and you're talking about, the you know, the uh, sea that was in the middle of Australia. There was actually many many different mm. inland seas over the geological time of australia um so this one you know is in the cretaceous there's one from the neoproterozoic which is about a, you know a billion years ago and then as t as you go through time you start to pull those clues together that we were talking about you start to understand how there was you know there was a sea in the middle of australia and then that sea the sea levels um, you know, shrank and then that was oh, that was desert or that was a mountain and then the sea level climbed again and then there was another one and we just go through these periods and periods and that's all to do with where cont well, continent Australia as we know it now was sitting relative to where it was on earth so at some point we were up very close to the equator and it was hot and humid and those types of things and then at another time in, in geological time it was down near the south pole and it was covered in ice so there's many many different types of um of inland sea that Australia went through. The one in the Cretaceous, as Alice was saying, is really important for um, groundwater, oil and gas. And if you think about it in a, in a scientific way, the rocks that are formed at the bottom of the ocean um, are often sandy and sandstones and those sorts of things. And if you think about a sandstone like a sponge, it absorbs things like oil, like gas, like water. And then it just depends on whether what's happened to that rock unit as it's gone through up and down up and down through the different histo history of the earth and how it's changed and whether it's been squished and hot and it has changed it's changed a rock or it's still a sandstone and that is what's dependent on whether it's storing something that we can use or if it even preserves rocks with fossils in it or if it doesn't because sometimes you know a, a, rock, a sandstone that has lots of fossils in it can be buried and the fossils can all disappear because mm. it gets hot and they they get cooked essentially and then disappear so um yeah it's, it's really cool that we have um, some rocks, particularly in Australia, that preserve things um, and fossils as amazing as the one we've got in our exhibit. Yeah. And people uncover them. I mean, it's the people are out there, people from geoscience and other people are out there looking for it and it would just look like a normal rock. It, 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 the, the 
fossil isn't just sitting there going, hello, I'm here, and, you know, come find me. It's, it's, it's out there, and I think that there's a lot of space out there. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. And, and a lot of the fossils, and we're talking about big fossils and tiny little fossils, are accidental discoveries. Mm. And so, you know, if you want to talk about a fossil, local fossil, we can talk about the um, ACT fossil emblem that we have, which is the Bacalio Michelli, whose name I can never quite pronounce properly. Um, that was found in a drill core that was drilled in the bottom of the Treasury building while they were doing some geotechnical work to shore up the foundations and make sure it was right. And it just happened that this trilobite, when they drilled it, was on the edge of the of the drill core and they go, oh, what is that? C- cracked up, opened the drill hole and there's this amazing trilobite. Wow. Um, so, and then, you know, Geoscience Australia and Geological Society of Australia went through this whole thing about what's going to be our fossil, our fossil emblem um, and then we voted and then we got the one we've got. But, you know, while you're out there visiting the Rocks of Shape Australia, you should pop into the museum and see there's the um, four or five different one, different fossils that could have been our emblem are in the library on display. So you can drop into the library and have a look at those as well while you're at the Rocks of Shape Australia. Exhibit. And the, the beautiful thing about these fossils is they tell us what animals lived. But if we gather enough fossils of the same type of animal, we can actually infer or guess things about their behavior so one of the really cool thing about these ichthyosaur fossils is there are adult ichthyosaurs found all over where this sea was so if you picture most of inland queensland parts of the northern territory in south australia but baby ichthyosaur fossils are only found along the very southern edge of where that ocean was so we think that they may have actually behaved a bit like whales and traveled around these inland seas and had their babies in certain carving areas a lot like at the head of the bite in south australia you'll see whales gathering because it's a safe place to raise their babies so when we have enough of these fossils if we find just one of an animal we can't we can learn some things about it but as we gather more and more we can help to learn about their behavior and what that tells us about the wider ecosystem which i find really fascinating it's amazing (laughs) and the great thing about fossils too is that they can help us age the rocks yes so we know that certain animals lived over in very short periods of time so if you can find a layer of those of those fossils in that in a rock and you have no idea what age it is, you're like, well, I do now because, like, for example, we know that dinosaurs are around during the Cretaceous. So if you find a rock with a dinosaur fossil, hello, you're in the Cretaceous, that's another clue. So it's all part of building that story together to understand the rocks and the geology and the evolution of, of Australia and the world. And this is why I love geology, I think, because you're taking all that scientific information and then interpreting it and... Um... I'd say there's uh, a lot of creativity involved. And I mean creativity in the sense of you're not making it up, you're using the facts to That's tell right. you exactly. what's going on. Yeah, but. exactly. And I, I often think of geology as the bucket stem because you do chemistry, physics, biology, maths, engineering, anything you can think of that fits under the STEM umbrella, you can do as an earth scientist, which is why it's so cool because you get to do so many different things. So if you're like, I don't know what I want to do, become a geologist or an earth scientist because then you can do it all. That's my that's that's my And good travelling. And good travelling. And you get to go to the most amazing places, particularly in this country where many people don't get to go. Um, it's an absolute privilege to be an earth scientist and be out. Like I spent heaps of time out in Central Australia where many, many people never got to go. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Well, we might explore a bit more mm. how some of these rocks affect our daily lives and some of the interesting places we can find them. But for the moment, I'm going to throw to a quick music break. Uh, I've done my best to find some local rock music. Uh, this is Fun <laughs> Machine uh, with their song, Wichita. <laughs> And that was local Canberra band Fun Machine with their song Wichita. A bit of rock music for this rock science that we are talking about here on Fuzzy Logic 
We've got uh, Broderick and Camille in the studio from Fuzzy Logic talking to Alice and Verity from Geoscience Australia about the new exhibition that is opening soon over at the Geoscience building called Rocks That Shape Australia. Just before the break, we were talking about uh, the, the rocks in everyday lives and how they engage us and, and talking to Alice about the exhibition it's not just rocks that you can see there there's some everyday objects I mean I say everyday objects we we're talking about the ichthyosaur that's hanging from the ceiling and that's not quite an everyday object um, but uh, but what's your favorite uh, non-rock that's in the exhibition apart from that wonderful marine reptile it's a little bit like asking me to pick my favorite child it's a really mean <laughs> question we do have a whole range of non-rock objects so initially when you walk into the space you might sort of go huh that's weird why is there a this thing and this thing? Why are there 900-year-old Chinese coins and a taxidermied wallaby and historic photographs next to, next to the rocks? And we actually want people to say, oh, that's a bit weird, in the hope that it will draw them in to learn more about our stories. I think one of my favourite objects um, looks a little bit like if you imagine a witch's hat that was woven out of grasses and is nearly two metres long. So a long cone-shaped object with a witch's hat end on it that's actually an eel trap that's been made by the Gunditch Mara people of Western Victoria. That's one of my favourite accompanying objects. It's like an artwork in itself. It was made by um, Arnie Sandra down in Western Victoria. So it's an incredibly beautiful object. It's been made with great love and great skill. The skill of making these woven baskets and eel traps has been passed down for generations and generations. But it's also a really important functional object in that it's used to help catch eels, freshwater eels, which are called kuyong locally and it links in with rocks because in western victoria an area the size of cairns so the size of a city is a huge huge aquaculture facility essentially that has been used to farm kuyong or freshwater eel for over six thousand years so it's one of the world's largest and oldest aquaculture facilities it's recently become a world heritage area and the gunditch mara people have used basalt which we often think of as being a rock that's related to volcanoes, and I can jump to volcanoes in a moment, but a, a basalt rock in huge chunks to make weirs and walls and dams to farm freshwater eel using these baskets in gaps between the rocks so that when the eels try to escape, they get caught in the baskets and can be moved depending on their size to grow freshwater eel. And it's a really amazing story, I think, of human ingenuity to build a city the size of Cairns takes a huge amount of work, even with earth movers and, you know, all the things that we have today. But imagining altering and shaping the ecosystem, shaping how water behaves in an area the size of a city um, over thousands and thousands of years, the amount of moving of rocks that has to go on. We think the pyramids are impressive. To me, this puts the pyramids to shame. So to use and take care of country and manipulate the way water moves around country also allowed Gunditch Mara people to live in the one place permanently and they also use this rock to build stone houses that, again, are many, many thousands of years old. So I love the object for its beauty and for the intrigue of what is this thing till you get a bit closer to us, but it allows us to tell a really important First Nations story that we developed with Gunditch Mara and told the story together about how rock is important for them culturally but also functionally in living their life, and it has been for thousands upon thousands of years. The really cool thing is that this rock comes from volcanoes, um, and the volcanoes erupted up to 37,000 years ago, and there are dreaming stories about the eruptions of these volcanoes. So they are held in the living communal memory of these people. They're sort of next-door neighbours culturally, actually call this type of 
basalt rock kalur, and that basically means hot. So there's literally a memory of these rocks being hot that has been passed down in language for all of this time. So I also love that it reminds us about how long our lived culture is in Australia and the things that people have seen change over that time. That's pretty impressive because yeah, you don't think of Australia as a, as a uh, active uh, a volcano continent uh, anymore, but uh, the fact that we had people living here when it was active is just impressive. Um, and and that's a that's a really interesting use of that rock and, and understanding what what's there locally and, and uh, utilizing it. Can we talk a bit more about the rock there too, about basalt and and what is unique about it? Because it's um, when in terms of setting up those those fish traps and that sort of thing, was it based around the way the rocks were already and moving other rocks to take advantage, or was it really just constructed entirely by the the peoples? So the rock was available in the local area and and rocks, both as tools but also as rocks, have been traded right across the continent by First Nations people with different properties right around for different reasons. But this rock was found pretty locally to the area and I guess it could be broken apart into essentially liftable-sized hunks to move around. Basalt is usually um, quite a dark-coloured rock with little tiny grains because it forms when volcanoes spew spew their lava and magma onto the surface. So it cools down really quickly because it's exposed to the air, which is relatively cold compared to the middle of the inside of a volcano. So it cools down really quickly in little dark crystals. This particular type of uh, basalt we would call vesicular basalt, which has sort of got air bubbles in it because it cooled so quickly that some bubbles of air were captured in it. So it's not as dense or heavy as it looks, although I did make the mistake of carrying it through the middle of the Canberra Centre and got very tired of it. So it's still fairly <laughs> heavy. One of the really cool things at Geoscience Australia, though, is a different type of basalt. We actually have the only piece of the moon in the whole southern hemisphere that you can touch. And it is also a type of basalt. So I love basalt for a couple of different reasons there, <laughs> that you can literally come and touch the moon. It's free. You can come whenever you like, as long as it's nine to five, Monday to Friday. Um, so it's a great school holiday activity to literally come and touch a piece of the moon as well as see this exhibition. Do you want to add anything there? Yeah, and I guess the other way that basalt is sometimes formed is um, it does it's, as it spews out, it may um, come into contact with water, often the sea, and that's when you get those little vesicles, those bubbles. They're basically um, trapped where the gas gets trapped as it rapidly cools. Um, and sometimes, so it is a water as well um, as the as the the colder atmosphere hits water, and psh, you know you sort of get that. And we saw it not that long ago in Hawaii when one of the volcanoes in Hawaii was um, was erupting, and the, the the lava was flowing down into the ocean, and it was instantly creating rock. So it's it can be very young, but it could also be quite old as well. So which is very cool. And as much as thirty four thousand years ago sounds pretty recent, we say, oh, we don't imagine Australia as being a very volcanic place. The most recent volcanic activity in Australia was only about five thousand years ago. Oh, wow. So we do actually have volcanoes that have been active quite recently. And the way that volcanoes are classified as whether they're extinct or dormant, those volcanoes, because it's so recent, are actually they're having a little rest, but they're not <laughs> completely extinct. So it's possible that we could have volcanic eruptions in the future. One of the cool things, though, before people panic and run away, um, in Canberra, we're, we're, we're in a reasonably safe spot. But um, one of Geoscience Australia's really important jobs is monitoring for earthquakes. So we have a series of sensors, over 200 sensors right across Australia, that are monitoring for when the earth is moving. 
And one of the things that's likely to happen is we're not going to have a giant volcanic eruption out of nowhere with no notice. The processes of um, the the sort of magma when it's down underneath the ground moving and becoming active would likely be picked up by those sensors. So monitoring for earthquakes is a huge part of what we do, but almost as a side effect, we can also look for other things that are happening in the earth like these volcanoes. So it's more recent than we might think, but it's not something to be super duper scared about on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And a lot of the uh, the East Coast, if you go around um, Victoria and start going up the coast up towards Sydney, there's a big chain of um, varying aged volcanoes through that area. There's a big volcanic province through there. So most people do think, oh, we don't have volcanoes here. We do. <laughs> They're just not currently active at the moment. But um, yeah, as Alice said, we, you know, we'll have sniffs. So when you when you watch movies like Dante's Peak and the geologist is banging their hand on the desk going, but there's tremors in the earth. That's the kind of thing that Alice is talking about. We're, we're measuring for different, for changes, basically. Yeah. Basalt also weathers into really awesome soils for growing things, into really rich, fertile soils. So some of the best soils in Australia, ferrosol soils are as a result of the weathering of those types of rocks. Um, I used to live in northwest Tasmania and this sort of soil it literally looked good enough to eat. It was the colour of a nice block of Cadbury's chocolate and it was so fertile because of the type of rock that had weathered to make this sort of soil. So those rocks are also really important as they weather for agriculture. A lot of the food that we eat, our broccoli and cauliflower and potatoes, lots of it was grown in soil that once upon a time would have been basalt. So it sounds like the basalt is really, uh, I mean, it's a very prosperous rock for us in terms of helping us to, to create food with the eel traps uh, down in Victoria with the, the food that we can grow from the soil. But are there any really expensive rocks in there where the rock itself is worth lots of money that, uh, that you've got the high security on over at Geoscience Australia? There's a couple. <laughs> it also depends if, if you want to be specific and talk about rocks or minerals. We have some oh. individual very, very valuable mineral specimens. We also have a very, very valuable meteorite. <laughs> do, yes. And I guess I would consider the, the piece of moon rock to be pretty much priceless. Yeah. So you can come in and touch the rock, but please don't try to take off with it. It's very <laughs> securely securely put down. Yeah. We have some incredible fossils, um, fossils, minerals, and rocks on display. Um, and we also have a piece of Broken Hill Ore, which is a great opportunity in this exhibition to talk about the economic importance of rocks to Australia's economy. So BHP... Um, Australia's largest company. I literally checked on the stock exchange this morning to check that that's still correct. It's our (laughs) largest company. I didn't know until a couple of years ago what BHP stands for. Broderick's laughing. Did, did, no. Am I the only person who didn't tweet to what BHP stood for? No, I, I, I had a similar revelation at the Newcastle Museum. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it, but I've forgotten now. <laughs> so it stands for BHP is about Broken Hill Proprietary Limited. So the biggest company in Australia and one of the world's largest and most prosperous companies was started in Broken Hill which is a town of 17,000 people today. It's a relatively small-sized town. But back in the early 1900s, it was the second largest city in New South Wales. Um, And that is because there is a huge body of ore that um, contains lots and lots of silver, lead and zinc at Broken Hill. It looked, the ore body, so this is the type of rock that held these pieces of zinc and lead and silver, looked like a boomerang. So it looked like a boomerang standing on its ends. The two ends of the boomerang were deep underground. The pointy middle bit of the boomerang actually crested up out of the ground to make the broken-looking hill that the town is named after. 
If you visit Broken Hill today, it's false advertising because the hill's actually been literally dug up. So there's no Broken Hill in Broken Hill <laughs> that, anymore. Well, that's why I thought it was because they'd broken off the hill, but no, it was breaking no, out. It, it broke yeah. out. And um, a boundary rider named Charles Rasp in 1883 was sort of exploring in that area and he saw this really unusual ridge line and he thought it was a tin deposit. Um, so he was reported back very excitedly. It turned out he was wrong. It was not tin, but it was another really economically. It was even better, exactly. <laughs> and it became hugely important for Australia's economy. Today, um, near Broken Hill, there's actually exploration happening for cobalt, which is a really important component of electric vehicle batteries. So while it is still an important part of the economy there, we're also looking at sort of that forward-facing rocks that will shape Australia. We can look at the resources that we're going to need for renewable energies in the future. But one of the things I love about the Broken Hill story in this rock is that it's really important economically, but it was also arguably the birthplace of workers' rights in Australia. Um, so many, many thousands of people worked under notoriously awful conditions in the early days of mining. And there were huge strikes to gain better conditions for workers and also safety conditions to keep people safe. Yeah, I've been up the, the top of Broken Hill there where they have the miners' memorial and it is... Uh, breathtaking just how many miners died working up there and and some of the ways they died too which are listed on that is is horrible um and in in fact i've got um a long lost family member graves out there um both um i think it's my great 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 maybe there's one more great and their grandfather <laughs> and his best mate um died within five days of each other um, um from an accident up there so it yeah. is it is uh, it, Shapes us socially. Very yeah. much. And, and you know, there was a strike that lasted for over 18 months and uh, amazing first-hand stories. And we have some beautiful photos in the exhibition that you can see of it wasn't just the miners themselves who were involved in the protest. Their families were also involved. So the women's brigade joined the picket lines and literally hit people with brooms and mops <laughs> they tried to defect. So that was, you know, there's some really entertaining um, now that we're a little bit more removed stories about. But the as much as that's amusing to imagine a lady chasing you with a broom because you're trying to break the picket line, to stand for over 18 months when you've got no income to make the case for why these safety rules were so important is an incredibly powerful move that still, you know, it reflects today when we look at the things that keep us safe in our workplaces. So I think it tells an amazing story about... Um, the social impacts of mining and how we can do it in ways that keep people more safe. And that echoes all the way through to today. So I, I really love that economic, but also that social story as well. And you can see beautiful photographs of the ladies in their lovely Victorian outfits, um, you know, and the policemen. And there were some really violent and difficult clashes, but ultimately it tells, I think, a really uplifting and amazing story. Yeah. I mean, I, as a geologist, love the Broken Hill story because, you know, it's, it's, how geology helped form Australia in a way the um, the the economy and the the money that was made out of selling off these you know commodities that were coming out of Broken Hill put us through two world wars and really put Australia on the map to be the, you know the diggers story and those sorts of things that was funded through the money that you know some of the money that came out of Broken Hill from the government selling you know and unfortunately some of the things I'm sure went into bullets and those types of things but that's 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 how life was back then and you know that sort of thing but um, I remember as a second year geologist geology student from Adelaide Uni um, rolling into Broken Hill on a field trip and just being like, this is Broken Hill. This is where <laughs> geology in Australia started. Like, you know, I love, and I, I, even now I love going back there and it's got, you know, 
love how all the street names in Broken Hill are named after different types of minerals. There's a Galena Street and all those types of things. I just love that. And, and um, you know, every when you go over, go into, you know, many of the mining towns in Australia, they have that feel, that colonial feel to it, you know, the big wide streets so that, you know, um, the horses could go down and those sorts of things. And it links to one of the other uh, parts of the exhibit, which is the um, ore from the Victorian goldfields that's there as well. And, you know, there's similar stories that come out of that, that movement, the, you know, the Australian gold rush and those types of things. Um, I think, you know, that just that history of how geology and earth sciences is intrinsically linked into what we are as a country is just so important for, for you know, for people to understand. And a lot of people really don't appreciate that because that's not something they've been exposed to. So I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, and it's still very much an active place as well, particularly in Broken Hill. I remember going there for for work a few years ago and um, I can't remember what time it was, but we were sitting having our dinner in the Palace Hotel and then suddenly just this boom in the background and and, and none of the locals looked anyway and and it's just that 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 time every day is the boom. Yeah, I had the same experience in Kalgoorlie. (laughs) (laughs) And what Alice was saying about them now exploring for cobalt in the region, that sort of thing. Cobalt was one of our critical minerals that we absolutely need. It's on the critical minerals list um, to, you know, get us into that, you know, transition into that, you know, net zero economy because we need cobalt, we need copper, we need all these rare earth mineral, rare earth elements, all these sorts of things to build our solar panels, our wind farms, our EVs, all of these sorts of things. So I think it's, you know, it's good that there's, there's an, you know, historical mining in Broken Hill, but there are also, you know, new sorts of things because back in the day, cobalt, they were like, oh, it's too hard to find or, you know, we didn't know it was here and those sorts of things. So the evolution of what we understand as earth scientists and how we explore for things has also, you know, links into the past and we how we've extended that into the, what we're looking for now is, is really important story as well. We don't often find new amazing multi-multi-million and billion dollar mineral deposits just by accidentally falling over them on your horse. So um, one of the things that's really important at Geoscience Australia and that I found really fascinating is we have, you know, we can drill holes to look at what's underground and that's very important. But we can also use lots of different ways of sensing what's under the ground without necessarily drilling in every, you know, second step that you take. So we can look at the density of rocks and materials underground. We can look at how magnetic they are and we're developing lots and lots of amazing technology to essentially see through the earth and later on we'll ground drill ground truth it by drilling in holes but the ability to look over the huge size of australia and better map and understand what's underground without physically drilling into it i find really fascinating yeah and and that's that's an excellent point and i think it's also worth pointing out that sometimes geologists drill holes just because they want to know what's underground like it's sometimes the (laughs) drilling that we do is for pure stratigraphic and and research um, reasons we can't look for those tier one deposits those big olympic dams that we've got until we understand the geology so sometimes we will drill a hole but before we do that we do all sorts of geophysics which is what alice was describing there and trying to work out you know we know now so much about the olympic dams and the broken hills and the carabatinas and all of that of the world we know what we're looking for when we look in those geophysical you know images and those sorts of things and that's how we're being a bit more targeted but we also have all these techniques to go, nah, no good, we'll move to the next spot, which is actually really important too. So, you know, we've moved a lot from, yeah, falling off your horse and finding a a hunk of silver stuff, which you think might be tin. (laughs) (laughs) And it's the root of science, isn't it? That's right. Science Week is that we go out and we look for stuff and we find, and sometimes you do it just because you're like, I just want to know what's here. 
but it's using all of those techniques and things that we've developed to to find the thing that's going to help us out. And I think Australia is weirdly, we've we've got a lucky thing where we, we have all these other little deposits. The iron's been great, but all the other, the zinc that's right. and everything. Yeah. yeah, and if you can, get, you can find clusters of those little things, that they, then they become economic one by itself. You're not going to bother mm. using, but if we've got lots in the same area, and we're much smarter with our processing now. So things that maybe were not economic 50 years ago, people are revisiting them now because they know that there's a better way to extract it. It's easier, it's better for the environment, all those types of things, they can now be done. So a lot of what was done in the past is being revisited, but we have those, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say, <laughs> to um, to better do what we used to do in a much better way, in a much safer way than what we did before. Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing about this exhibition. We've been talking a lot about historic rocks there, but um, I note that the exhibition is very much not in the past tense. It's not rocks that shaped Australia; it's rocks that shape Australia. Was that a was that a conscious decision around? Absolutely. That? At, at the risk of sounding like the public service, there were meetings upon meetings on <laughs> that. No, it's really important, and I guess. The story of the person about whom this exhibition is inspired by kind of illustrates that. So Dr. Marita Bradshaw started her career looking at mapping and monitoring and understanding where oil and gas are. And she has now moved to looking at ways of understanding how best to store hydrogen. So if in one person's career, and I think that's that's rather amazing and remarkable that in one person's working career, and Marita herself talks about this, that she can change her focus and evolve her focus. We definitely have some future-looking stories and we're looking at expanding and growing this exhibition in the future to include more future-looking stories. So, for example, to look at pegmatites, which are really important um, in being able to make our awesome Tesla cars that we love. So, you know, so to find links to the future. And we also, one of my favourite things about the exhibition that is maybe a little bit underrated is a whiteboard. The reason, it's a slightly (laughs) fancy whiteboard, but the reason we have a whiteboard is that we ask every visitor who comes to the exhibition to tell us the rock that they think shaped Australia. And it allows us to collect, you know, really personal poignant stories about rocks that people love, but also to look at what's on people's minds for the future about what's going to be important. Geoscience Australia's work in that aspect looking forward is so important to maintaining you know, a healthy and vibrant economy to keeping people safe, to taking care of our environment. So we definitely have some future looking stories and we're going to include more as time goes on. So if you have a favorite rock, come and visit us and write it on the whiteboard. We're recording them all. We're making a note of them all. Dwayne the Rock Johnson appears quite a bit. He probably won't <laughs> actually appear in the exhibition. <laughs> if only. If only. <laughs> but maybe he could open it. We could invite him to the next stage. But we, you know, we, we take those suggestions seriously and it's a really lovely live conversation to be able to have. Um, kids invariably have a favorite rock i have been gifted many people's favorite rocks to look at in my time um and i hope that adults maintain that joy and when we ask them that question they do have a really serious think about what rocks mean to them and how they intersect with their lives in so many different ways when you said that there was the whiteboard there alice i immediately started thinking hold on what rocks and minerals create a whiteboard and, <laughs> and, and what is what is that sheen made of but i think that's a, it's a really interesting point that you're, you're looking forward and, and going through that so verity what would you be writing on that whiteboard what would i be writing on that whiteboard i mean my i am a slightly biased my phd was looking at the glacial rocks in south australia so i think they're fantastic they um particularly in the metropolitan down into the south of of in adelaide formed a lot of the landforms and the landscape that make up the beautiful Fleurieu Peninsula. Um, so my localised bias of where I lived and have studied and bled for um, <laughs> during my PhD, that would be those dimectites um, from that area. But I think um, it's just, you know what I really love? I love the red sands 
of Central Australia. I spent a lot of time out there as a geologist and nothing says says to me Australia like those sand dunes out there. So I would love to see some sand out there, maybe different types of sands from different types of landscapes around Australia. But that to me is intrinsically Australian. And um, if you talk to people, they go, oh, yeah, the deserts of Australia, there, there's red long, longitudinal sand dunes. That's what I would love to see in there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although in reality, you could do, do sands that shaped Australia because yeah. then you look at our beaches and, Absolutely. and that sort of thing. And, you know, uh, we talk about the economy. There's a lot of work being done at the moment looking at mineral sands, which hold a lot of the critical minerals that we're going to need into the future. So there's rutiles, iconium, those types of rocks and, and minerals and elements are in the sands that we have that we're now looking at mining to, to you know, advance us as a society. So there's still that link. There's all those sorts of links, just the, rock, the sh- sands that shape Australia. Yeah. yeah. Very excellent. Did you have one, Camille, that, a favourite rock that you've been running on that board? Not really, but I, I would agree with you with that. I went to um, Uluru last year and it just hits you. I've been to Perth and Darwin and that the rusting on the pavements, everything is this orangey-brown colour, but when you go to Central Australia, it's just... It's there and you go, yeah, this is really the colour of Australia. This is what people... And then you think about all of those deposits that have shaped who we are, where we are, even back from the First Nations of people. They read that rock and and they had connection to it and it's just like, yes, this is symbolic of everything that we are and will be. And and the, the, you know, the the botany aspects and the ecology aspects of the desert. Mm. There's all of those stories that we haven't even talked about and, you know, I'm not a book a botanist or an ecologist but you know there's you know we know that there are certain plants that only grow in certain places of Australia and those sorts of things there's Mm. so many different things you can link um to the science to the geology to the soils and you know those plants grow there because there's a certain thing in the soil that they like or those sorts of things so yeah it's just such a big story I have a great sort of uh, uh, sort of a finishing off and linking point to that. When I was doing a field geology subject at uni, basically we were given, you know, it was an area about five kilometres by five kilometres, so a big area, and told just map that. Like walk up and down the, down the hills and mountains and figure out what sort of rocks are where and create a map. And so we spent days climbing up these big hills and climbing back down and looking at where the rocks changed. And something happened three days in where my brain just went click and it was literally the world looked different and I went, hang on a second, this type of tree only grows where there is day site underneath. And suddenly everything made sense. And I looked around and I went, rather than climbing that big hill, I can look with my binoculars, see if the day site tree is there and just write day site. And I raced over to our lecturer and I said, is this a thing? And he said, yep. I said, you didn't tell us? He said, nope. I said, how long does it normally take people to notice? He said, about three days. <laughs> so this Geobotany is... <laughs> is absolutely a thing. <laughs> so this was his personal amusement, but absolutely the rock is the basis of all the other things that form from it. And that's one of the things I really love about earth science, as much as it was a bit of a mean joke, to be honest. <laughs> awesome. Well, if people want to explore these rocks that shape Australia, Alice, how can they do so? They can come and visit us at Geoscience Australia. We're at 101 Jerobombra Avenue. So on the corner of Jerobombra Avenue and Hindmarsh Drive, people will often drive past our building day in, day out to commute and not necessarily realise what it is. We're open 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. Entry is free. There's free parking and a great cafe. So you can come whenever you like, but it's a great school holiday activity. Um, and you can also see our other incredible displays. You can visit the National Earthquake Alert Centre. You can see parts of the National mineral and fossil collection and when there aren't school groups you can visit our education centre which is a great hands-on space so we really encourage 
everyone to visit who can. And, yeah, come and share your thoughts about what we should add into the exhibition in the future. And, and don't forget the time walk. So out, oh, yes. out in, our, in our, um, our grounds we have an amazing time walk, which is essentially you can walk through time from 4.6 billion years ago to today and there are rocks at important places and they're basically more rocks that have shaped Australia <laughs> throughout the if you, as you walk around the time walk you can visit the rocks that were formed at certain times in geological history as well and that's about 1.1k walks great to burn off kids energy after they've had their <laughs> hot chocolate in the cafe um so yeah come out and, and visit the come into the foyer but also spend some time on the grounds and having a look at the great rocks we've got out there you can also visit us today if you're speedy at Westfield Woden yes. so we're having a pop-up as part of National Science Week you can come and meet a whole bunch of our staff and engage with a whole range of activities about earth science at Westfield Woden. Mm, Five, four o'clock. So if you get in quick, you can get down there. <laughs> Very quickly. Thanks, Alice. Thanks, Verity. And thanks, Camille, for another fantastic episode of Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. <laughs>